Some religions preach of a period known as the end times and use rather vivid prophecies and signs to mark that era. What if those messages weren't literal, but were instead allegorical? And if we are living in that time frame, what does that mean for us and how we may want to live our lives? In this episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, we bring on author and data nerd Guy Morris to talk about his research into the symbolism within various end-time prophecies and the potential links between their messages and current events. He also shares how he uses his books to encourage us to think, if those prophecies are true, then what? It's time to sit in your favorite chair, grab your favorite beverage, and get ready for this episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, The End Times, Data-Driven Deciphering, with guest Guy Morris. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, created and hosted by The Mystic Geek. If you're looking to explore intriguing questions about the meaning of life and our place in the universe, then you're in the right spot. We dive into topics often discussed as sound bites on social media and take a deeper look, whether it's woo topics like astrology and mysticism, or seemingly mundane matters like technology and politics, we cover it all. We explore our own thoughts and beliefs, talk to experts, and uncover hidden meanings. These fascinating areas of exploration can help us question ourselves and better understand our world. Ready to grow and explore in your spiritual journey? We're glad you can join us. It's time to start your week off by being spiritual AF. Welcome back, listeners. Today we have Guy Morris with us to talk about his writings and some very interesting theories when it comes to different phases of human development and what can happen in the future. Guy, we're glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Jessica. My pleasure to be here. All right. My audience is curious. Can you share a little bit more about yourself? Well, I'm a very eclectic individual. I started off at age 13 as a homeless runaway. I worked alongside migrant workers for a few years and then went home long enough to get a GED and left home at age 15. But I was still functionally illiterate. By a series of what I can only call it miracles, I entered college at age 19 and struggled, honestly, for a bit until something clicked, something changed, and I started racing like a horse. And by the time I was done, I had multiple degrees. I had developed a macroeconomic model that outperformed the blue chip indicators based on a new theory I had developed. I got a graduate scholarship degree. I was accepted into Harvard. And then I spent 36 years in Fortune 100 companies in global energy, high-tech manufacturing with companies like IBM and Burroughs, and software with companies like Oracle and Microsoft, as well as a few startups, a few great successes and a few miserable failures. During that time, I wrote songs for Disney. I recorded multiple CDs. I led worship at a, a church in Venice Beach, California, which is one of the most interesting places you can ever imagine to lead church for a lot of reasons. I produced an award-winning FCPNage webisode series that was optioned by one of the studios until the FBI shut it down, which is a whole long story, fun story. I have been an adventurer. I've went diving with sharks. I've gone diving for sunken ruins off of Belize and Cozumel had a death threat by cartel in the process. I raised my son aboard a 50-foot sailing yacht where I earned a Coast Guard charter capital license. 
And now I'm an author. I write intelligent, well-written, well-researched rather, I think well-written. I've won a few awards, thrillers. I've been compared to Dan Brown, Robert Ludlum, Irish Johansson, and most recently, Bob Clancy. And that's my third act career. I love being busy and productive. And I figure if there's a fun way of going out, it's be with telling stories. Got it. So since you brought it up, I'm curious, why do you think you're compared to Dan Brown? I think a number of reasons. I write page turners with warm characters that you really like or want to be around. He writes intelligent, witty characters, and I do the same. But also, um, he has a great way of taking a lot of historical and or scientific fact that's true and then creating a speculative story behind it. And I think that all of my books are deeply rooted and founded on factual information. And I just have speculative fictional characters and plots, speculative plots. And so as you're reading the book, there's a very high level of degree, and you'll find this in his books as well, of plausibility. Mm-hmm. How that really, is that, did that really happen? It, it, could that really be the truth? And, and you almost have to go through somebody saying, no, no, here's all the facts. Here's all the fiction. And I actually published all the facts and fiction on my website. So for transparency, so I can say back, 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 back. No, this part by me. So in this day and age, sometimes the fact is stranger than fiction. We have to go through and be able to point those out. And I think the last other thing I would say that I think bear to your audience is that I do tend to blend real science with real religion and real politics. And I think that can sometimes be controversial for some. I know some people love Dan Brown. Some people hate him because of his content. I think that if you're really going to say something meaningful, you have to be willing to crack a few eggs in the process. Exactly. So with the various books that you've written so far, what has been the inspiration behind those books for you? Oh, wow. Various different sources. My historical thriller, The Curse of Cortez, started as a sequel to a short story for my son when he was like 11 or 12. It took me over 10, 12 years to research this book. The more I researched, the more questions I had, the more questions I tried to find out, the deeper the story got. It turned into an epic story, I kid you not, that connected the 30-ton, billion-dollar abandoned treasure of Henry Morgan after Sac Panama that also went 500, 600 souls went missing, three ships went missing, but Morgan survived and burned his logbooks to keep the world from learning the truth. Ultimately, the whole city of Port Real, including Morgan's grave, sank into the ocean, the local city cursed by Morgan. I was determined to find out what happened to 30 tons of stuff five, five, six hundred souls and three ships. And more important, what happened to Morgan that traumatized him so deeply, so profoundly that he would give up, abandon a billion dollar plunder he had killed thousands of people to get. And then whoosh about it so much bad that he had to burn his logbooks before he died. That journey took me to uh, a discovery in 1911 by F.A. Mitchell Hedges, who claimed he found Atlantis before he disappeared with 250 million current day equivalent of gold that he smelted it down so nobody would know the sources and even edges wouldn't talk about how he found it. It tied me to an island conquered by Morgan's uncle, turned into a pirate base. That same island was a site of an Inquisition massacre that depopulated the island and ended a 2000 year pilgrimage before anybody bothered to find out why. He canoeing 50 miles to this island. 
that pilgrimage connected me to the 5,000-year Mayan calendar and the Mayan creation myth that claimed that the world had been created, destroyed three times before the Spanish had arrived and the epoch, or the calendar that ended in 2012, was their fourth epoch. And so that then tied me to their end of the world prophecies. It was such an amazing set of discoveries that I pulled together that I had to write an amazingly good modern day story like a Dan Brown to pull those things together as the characters went through this incredible ordeal to these truths. And actually, Book Trip called that book, Curse of Cortez, one of their favorite 25 books of 2021. They called it Indiana Jones Meets Da Vinci Code. So that was one of the comparisons to Brown. The other two books, Mormon, The Last Ark, come from a combination of spiritual and technology and politic revelations. The real starting point of it was years ago, I had discovered that a program had escaped Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is a well-known NSA spy lab. They do signals, they do cryptology, they created the sex virus. So it's a spy program. So it's in my head, a spy program escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, and there was a short article basically saying that if you knew anything, contact this professor or this FBI agent. So the program escaped, and they didn't know how to find it. I thought that was such an amazing story. I actually spent several months. I cut out that little two-paragraph article. It was Associated Press article, so it had some validity. I put it on my monitor, and I thought about it every single day for months, and I kept thinking, okay, architecturally, how would a program have to be designed so that it could escape an NSA lab? Escape implies intent. It implies intelligence. It implied the ability to move itself and then erase its trail so nobody could find it. What was it designed to do that it had that amazing stealth, invisible program capability? And I came up with a list of functions and then I came up with a theory on why. And then FBI showed up my door. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Rather perturbed that I had figured out something they really thought should be top secret. Oh, and, I, no. and I was like, hey, guys, you have to be better at hiding this stuff if you don't want somebody to figure out. And if I can figure it out, I'm sure somebody in Russia can figure it out. And by the way, you should give me a job. I had just married my current wife. We're now married 30 years, but we'd only been married a couple of years at that point. So she was freaking out. She was like, why is the FBI in our dining room? What did you do and who are you? Oh, boy. Uh, they found out because I had decided with a friend of mine who was a film producer that we would produce this as a webisode series. And we won tons of awards. We got optioned by the studios. One of my biggest fans was a guy named, I only knew him by his alias until the final weeks of the show, but his alias was Orbit at NASA.gov. So this is a guy high up in NASA, so high that he got to choose his own cool alias, right? That's like saying, George is Rocket Man, Glenn is Moonwalker, I'm Orbit. I found out he was the director of flight operations for the Houston Space Center. He taught the astronauts how to fly a space shuttle. So he was one of my biggest fans. I laughed at the FBI. They wanted me to take the whole thing down. When I laughed at him and I told him, heck no, you guys, it's not my fault. You guys are clumsy. They went to the studio and killed the deal. So I lost a lot of money, tucked my tail between my legs. I went and got a job. I can't remember if it was a startup at that point or Oracle, but it was one. But that was the inspiration for my books, Swarm and The Last Ark, which now features that escaped program as a character. I avoided the whole Tom Clancy, Navy SEAL, FBI, you know, can kill you seven ways before breakfast, sir, kind of character. 
And I chose instead to create a very sarcastic, somewhat traumatized youth, genius hacker who's living under the name of his best friend because his best friend had died in an explosion that was meant for him. And he's still hiding from the people who want him dead and all that kind of stuff. It's a fun set of books. I bring in artificial intelligence. I bring in real weapons being developed by DARPA. I bring in real politics that were happening in the United States around election fraud and conspiracies, potential for martial law, a number of those kinds of things. I'll bring in the Ukraine war that's now currently going on, current things going on with the Bilderberg group, which are not seen as good guys in my books. There's a theme that goes throughout the books, and it's a unique theme that you won't see in almost any other artificial intelligence or espionage thrillers, which is that the program that has now escaped has decoded end-time prophecy and is trying to warn the other characters that prophecy is about how humanity will destroy humanity. And we're on that track today. I'm using the guise of artificial intelligence, data analysis, nonlinear regression analysis, probability analysis with the program to basically draw the correlation between events that are happening and things that set. Our characters are rather agnostic. They don't get it. They don't really understand it. They think the program's kind of got, got a bug in it somewhere. But that allows me to carry on to a number of themes. So in the last arc, I get to talk about two real stories. One of them is that in 2021, the Ark of the Covenant that's been in Ethiopia for 900 years, it left Israel 2,600 years ago, was on the Elephant Island for several hundred years before the Romans chased them away. It was in synagogues in Ethiopia until the Templars came through and put it in churches. All of that is documented history. All of that has archaeology attached to it, and it's well known. But in January 21, Elisha stormed the city of Aksum and the church where this Ark was kept. 750 men, women, and children, including the guardian, the Ark were killed. The Ark was stolen and sold on the land. So the last Ark will speculate, in my view, who plausibly had enough money, power, influence to get, have that happen, and why did they want it? That will tie into a second true story. In the 1960s, near the ruins of Qumran, which actually goes back to the Babylonian era, they found a copper scroll. It was hidden behind a mud brick wall where not even people who wrote the scrolls that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls knew it was there. It was so brittle, it took them years to get it apart and clean it up and read it and decipher it. And it turned out to be a treasure map of all things. It had 64 locations where the pre-Babylonian priests had hidden tens of tons, billions and billions of dollars today worth of temple treasures, gold, silver, vessels from the temple. And in the 64th location is a second copper scroll that describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Now, this story is also reflected in the book of Maccabees. So there's some historical alignment to the story. Up until now, no one for 50 years since the 60s has been able to find any of these locations because they were all looking in the city of Jerusalem, thinking that's the place. About six or seven years ago, a guy came along, an American, ironically, and he decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. It was verified by the Jewish Sanhedrin and then also verified by the Israeli Archaeology and Antiquities Group, where they did metal scans and found non-ferrous metals under every location. They basically tried to kill the rumors that were flying around about it because that's Palestinian West Bank land. 
And if they dig it up, they would actually lose possession of everything dug up under that territory. They basically dug down like two feet and then said, there's nothing here. And then tried to quell the rumors. But that was about the same time that Netanyahu and the Israeli parliament started looking at trying to forcefully advocate for a single state solution. Because only under a single state solution will they be able to actually dig up their treasures and keep Those two go hand in hand with some issues with the solar winds fact and a strategic study written by the RAND Corporation to the DOD about AI data poisoning, the effects that could have. I couple that with a speculative story about a former U.S. president who's under criminal indictment. Rather than going to trial, he flees to Arabia where he declares asylum and he and the Arabian crown prince try and restart this PCO in Israel where all this basically comes to fruition. It's got a lot of threads and it's a lot of fun. Reader's favorite review basically said it was one of the most thrilling books they'd ever read. Reese review said that if Tom Clancy and Dan Brown had written the book together, it looked like the last arc. I constantly bring in real historical, archaeological, scientific, political, religious stuff and try to weave a great story out of that. I think my real hope is to get people to just think and find more spiritual roots and basis for how do they want to interpret that. If we have entered a period of, of history known as the end times, it's almost like saying, if you knew 10 years in advance that you were going to pass, would that change how you're living your life today? For most people, they say, yeah, if I knew that I wasn't going to live till I was 80, I might look different. If we're in those kind of times and we're looking at bringing on our own destruction, it's not the time to go dig bunkers or get dystopic. It's time to reevaluate life in more positive ways. I think there's that kind of dual message that I bring in. You mentioned that in your stories, you're talking about us approaching the end times. Do you believe that us, real life, that we're hitting that type of phase? I'm an analytical guy. And I look at current trajectories, current trends. And if I look at a matrix of those trends, from climate, population, food production, water consumption, freshwater availability, pollution of the rivers of the oceans. I look at politics in terms of the rise of very autocratic regimes that are very power hungry in China, Russia, and I would even say in parts of the GOP. I look at the sort of the current polarization of communities, families, countries, and then I look at the technology. There are 15 companies around the world today that are on the threshold of AI consciousness, which means we're not far away from AI singularity, which means that an AI is as aware of itself as separate from humans and is as smart as a smart human, which means AI will start being taught to program, which means they could create other AI. When I look at how we're using AI and how we're using it in autonomous weapons, how we could basically take down a country's entire infrastructure, which would throw them into the dark ages overnight. I tell people constantly, today, we have all of the resources, all of the technology, all of the people, and all of the money solve virtually every single one of the problems that face humanity, from hunger, to housing, to food, to education, to water, to peace, but we don't. And why is it that we don't? Why is it that it's taken us 25 years just to kick the one climate can down the road, and we're still no better off than we were then? There was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago that an AI had actually looked at all of the climate models and had concluded that all of the models are being very conservative in terms of the time frame we're going to get to 
one and a half percent, two percent, much quicker than any of them predict. We saw the doomsday clock basically get to 90 seconds to midnight last week. <laughs> Ironically, with a bunch of stone-faced scientists who never explained why they notched it up. When I look at all of the trends that are facing us, even including the acknowledgement that of alien technology or Asian spaceships, I think that the probabilities are that if I look at the number of prophecies that are filled and the probabilities of all of those things happening in a single generation, including things that for thousands of years throughout the history of man would have never been conceivable, like a third of the fish of the sea dying, a third of the birds of the air dying, a third of the beasts of the land dying, and we're now documented in a sixth extinction. We look at extremely radical probability scenarios. I actually built a model to prove it out to myself. And so the model I had only had 15 different prophecies, but things that I verify as completed through scientific journals. And at that point, this was 15, 20 years ago, I was one in 1.4 trillion that this was random chance. I could strip away all of the dogma. If I strip away all of the crazy guy wearing a burlap sack, holding aside the Indian sneer, kind of cuckoos. If I think rationally, if I, if I think mathematically, if I open my eyes and accept real situations on the ground and I say, are we trending? Are any of those major trends trending in the right direction? I conclude that I think we really are in a change in our human history. And I think we have the ability to evaluate and acknowledge those things. And we have a choice, try to do something about it where we think we might be able to change those trends that aren't going good right now, such as climate, population. We've added a billion people to the planet in less than a decade. That's just unheard of and out throughout history. So if I look at all of the once in historical time frame kind of scenarios, I have to, that is a possibility for sure. Got it. Now, you mentioned you did some data modeling on your own against, what was it, 15 prophecies? It had to do, it, yeah. yeah that, I was like, what? I am that nerdy. Uh, I am nerdy enough to even ask that question. So yeah, I I know, which prophecies are we talking about here? In the Big Bang Theory show, there was that one scene where Leonard's mom and Sheldon had some sort of theoretical question. And Sheldon says, are you just asking for the theory? Do you want to do the math? And the mom responds, no, I want to do the math. My wife turned to me and she said, that's you. Um, so yeah, I actually, it started because I was reading a National Geographic article about the loss of fish stocks worldwide and how historical this was and how dangerous this was. And combined with the dying of the reef systems that which are basically the nurseries to replenish the fish stocks. I recalled biblical revelation prophecy called seven trumpets that talk again, the third of the fish of the sea will die, third of the birds of the air will die, beasts of the land will die, etc. And I realized that I had read similar stories about bird flock loss and similar stories about species loss. And it occurred to me that other than an asteroid or a super volcano, these weren't some acts of God. These were all resulting from activities and actions made by humanity. And it got me thinking. It got me wondering if you talk about prophecy, it'll range from everywhere from religious people who absolutely believe, or even agnostic people who follow Nostradamus that believe it. When I looked at the Mayan prophecies of this particular epoch that we're in right now, the Mayan prophecies were talking about a great darkness and death. Or you get people to say, oh yeah, I believe in it, but it's not going to be for another two or three generations from now. My grandkids will have to for that. You'd get the whole spectrum, but all yeah. of that is subjective. And I realized that most of the prophecy teachings I had heard 
had a lot of cultural, religious, racial bias. It was about Christianity versus Islam, which I don't think it's about at all. And so I started asking myself, is there a more objective approach that I could use to answer this question even within myself? And it was really started as a answer within my own mind to say, well, are we or aren't we, right? Get past all of the subjective kinds of evaluations. Is there anything objective that I can And at the time I worked for a Bitwell company, I had access to millions of years of geologic data. I went to the library and bought a stack of National Geographic that talked about different elements of this. I made a copy of certain re- prophecies and revelations, mainly revelations and the gospels that kind of talked about certain things. Because I was in oil and gas, we had a lot of statistical probability at regression model tools. I was divorced. My son was at my ex-wife's for the weekend. And so I didn't have any money to go on any dates or do anything social. So I went Saturday morning and I finished Sunday night. And I, as I said, I developed a model for 15 particular individual events. And then I ran a model that says, what's the probability of all of these things happening within, at that point, it was a 50-year period from 1948. So a single generation. And that's where I came out with the one in 1.4 trillion. Now, at the time, I was tired. And I thought, either this is an absolute evidence for me or my math is really bad. But even if I'm off by a factor of 10 or even a factor of 100, it's still an amazingly high number. That analysis changed my life. That basically started me rethinking about my own priorities, rethinking about the future, my grandchildren, what was good in life, what was bad in life, what kind of person I wanted to be, if this was true. I started looking at news, economics, climate, science, politics, religion, everything with a new filter to say probable, unprobable, likely, unlikely, does this fit, not fit? It really radically changed my own spirituality and got me rethinking about where that was and how I wanted to fix it, change it. And it was, an, it was a big eye-opener for me. I was the geek. I actually did the math. I read somewhere there were 80 or 90% of the 800-plus prophecies about end times, and there was more prophecies about end times than there were about the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. But of the 800 prophecies that are attributed to this time frame, about 85, 90% of them at this point. Wow. I started thinking rather than from a religious doctrinal dogma perspective, mm-hmm. I put on my analytical hat, which I wore for work and I wore that helped me get, keep my sanity. Then I started saying, what are the ob- objective viewpoints and could I calculate? And you share a lot of this work in the books that you've written as well? I share it, but I mask it. I don't go into a lot of the details because I don't want my readers bored to death. without them to think first. So I'm presenting some of the conclusions and maybe some of the approaches in general, but it's the AI doing a lot of that kind of work. All the other people, their first impression is like the AI broke. Can an AI be conscious? Can an AI find religion? It doesn't really find religion per se because it doesn't have a soul, but it, it does have the ability to create analysis, to strip away analysis and allegory from outcome and then correlate that outcome. And that was a big tree for me as well. I realized that all of the, the variables in perceptions and interpretations of a lot of these things dealt with differences of how people interpret the allegory portion. I said, let's get rid of a flaming rock comes from the sky 
makes the rivers all polluted. Let's forget about that kind of concept, but let's just focus on the outcomes. Have the outcomes occurred? Is it documented? Can it be proven? Is it a objective evaluation? If I strip away the allegory and focus on the outcomes, I start coming up with a different way of interpreting these kinds of prophetic writings that I didn't have. And that I think most teachers don't really have because they're so focused on trying to interpret the allegory that really distorts a lot for their teachings. And I always had this kind of sense that maybe, maybe not, but it sounds really biased the way they're teaching it. This allowed me to really come up with a less biased, a more objective. Seeing we are in the end times or at least nearing it. What advice would you have for us as individuals as we go forward with this as a potential future? I try not to tell people how they respond. Is somebody who might be Islamic respond differently than somebody who might be Christian, mm-hmm. somebody who might be agnostic might respond differently. But I certainly would advise people to reprioritize. Don't think in terms of multiple generations. Think in terms of making an impact now. A famous line that said something along the lines of, I can't change the world until I change myself. Mm-hmm. Deepen your own spirituality. I believe in Christ. I believe that the prophecies relating to the end times also had prophecies related to Christ. I'm a Christian, but I don't write the books to proselytize. I write the books to get people to think about their own spirituality without having to beat them over the head with that religious mallet first. I think that there's enough truth there. There's truths elsewhere to be found. But my purpose is to just draw the attention to the one set of truths we're living in now. For some people, that's going to mean being an activist, that they want to promote better climate change regulation. There's so many different balls in motion right now. There are so many different threads in motion right now that even focusing on one won't be enough. It won't stop population, won't stop or slow down reef loss. It won't change the world economic form view of their control over monetary systems and everything else. It won't change the political division in America. But for some people, they will respond with being more activists about the things that they care about most and nothing wrong with that. I think that we need to have a conscience and pursue the things that we believe in the most. The root of it, I tell everybody, this is your chance to reevaluate your own spirituality and your own mortality and think about what your own purpose in life is and discover that and pursue it with a passion. Mm-hmm. Go after it. Be that person you dream, you aspire to be on all those levels. And don't think that life is just about the temporary enjoyment issues, because I think that'll leave you empty. I have to tell you, I've lived a great life. I've flown corporate jets, stayed five-star hotels, some of the best meals on the planet, worked side by side with geniuses and CXOs and major generals. I've gone diving with sharks. I've explored my ruins. I've lived a great life. Those things are great, nothing wrong with those things, but they're not necessarily the answer. Yeah. I try to just reinforce that this is something that we all have to address individually. It's not something we can answer as a community, as a nation, or even as a family. These are individual choices. Great wisdom there. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and also some of your views on these various things. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we go today? Go buy my books. What I think are interesting about the books is that while these might be challenging topics, 
I do so through really great, fun, witty, warm characters. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll grip your seat, you'll often end with a smile. I try not to dwell on the dystopic issues rather than the journey within them. Go to guymorrisbooks.com. That flight has buy links. It has mm-hmm. view links. You can buy it if you want to sign the copy. You can buy it there. It has fact versus fiction. It has image libraries at the real locations. It has some great videos. So it's a rich content site. Your readers really enjoy the journey that I'm taking my characters on and how they're stoning through some of these realizations on their own without any sort of arrogance or seat about whether they're right or wrong. Got it. So you mentioned your website. Is there anywhere else that people can find you online? I'm on Twitter, Guy Morris Books. I'm on Instagram at Author Guy Morris. I'm on Facebook at Official Guy Morris Books. I've written some articles on San Diego Voyager, SD Voyager Magazine. I've also written articles on Suspense and Mystery Magazine. Right now, I'm doing a lot of podcasts and I'm working with a PR consultant, hoping that by the end of the year, I can be an AI expert on television. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jessica. I appreciate you being here. So what did you think? I'll admit, I was intrigued by the message. It really brings home the sense of urgency when it comes to figuring out what it is that we want for ourselves and what actions we can take to make an impact on both now as well as for future generations. So with that, I'd like to pivot to future episodes that are coming up. First one is going to be a week from now, which is on April 9th. For that, we're bringing on guest Emma Hall to talk about the importance of gratitude in our spiritual practices. And then the following week on April 16th, we're bringing on guest Troy McFadden to discuss mindfulness and tools to support your spiritual journey. Specifically, we're going to talk about the use of plant medicine and how it is starting to be used more often when it comes to spiritual growth. So with that, hope everything goes well with you and you have a spiritual AF week. Talk with you later. Thank you for joining us for Spiritual AF Sundays. This show is hosted by the Mystic Geek. That's me. Got comments or questions from today's episode? You can either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com or send me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash themysticgeek. Don't worry, I'll put the link in the show notes. Help others start off their week with a spiritual AF Sunday by sharing this episode with them. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts help spiritual seekers find our show. So do the thing.